Warning, the following podcast may be harmful to your marriage or relationships if used in an attempt to change anyone but yourself. Are you dead, old buddy? <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Relationship Rewire, where we talk about what's right and what's wrong with relationships and marriage in our world today. My guest on this episode, Brian McLaren, has become a controversial figure over the past few years. While some listeners may have strong reservations about what he has to say, I hope you will listen to the end. There are some good things he says that are very valuable. That said, Relationship Rewire was never intended to be a podcast where we simply repeat what most of us already believe. That's a big reason for the word rewire. I intentionally invite guests to talk about ideas that I don't necessarily agree with. That way I can see things from a different perspective. Then I can grow. Then I can get better at loving. I hope you will do the same. And regardless of my opinions of Brian's ideologies, I can tell you that he is obviously a man of humility, warmth, and most of all, someone who strives to love as Jesus loves. I truly believe that he would rather be known for that than his ideas or in many books he's written. My guest today is Brian McLaren, who is uh, the author of several books, was a pastor of a church for some years, and now is pretty much just uh, you travel speaking and, and, and writing. Is that correct, Brian? That's right. Yeah. Tell us, uh, what, what, what are the, your three favorite books that you've written? Oh, that I've written? Well, you know, you're always partial to your most recent book. So I just wrote a book called The Galapagos Islands, A Spiritual Journey. And I'm an outdoors person. I love to fish. I love birds. I, love, I just love the outdoors. I'm a kayaker. So I got to visit the Galapagos Islands and do theological reflection on an amazing and interesting place. So that was... That's one of the books that, uh, you know, is, it will you, always be close to my heart. Did you get to kayak in the Galapagos? Uh, I got, I don't think we kayaked, but we snorkeled. I, we snorkeled for uh, close to three hours a day. So I spent a lot of time underwater and it was just amazing. <laughs> uh, I love snorkeling. My, my bucket list thing is to kayak around my home area, uh, about Vancouver Island in, in, uh, in between those islands and things. Oh boy, that'd be exciting. You'd yeah. see orcas and sea, sea lions and everything up there. Oh right? yes. Yes. What, what, what was the most spectacular thing you saw snorkeling there? Well, you know, um, you, a lot of folks have probably seen this on national geographic and stuff like that, but to be snorkeling along and see marine iguanas under you, sort of grazing on algae on the rocks and then have one swim up, you know, six inches from your face mask, take a <laughs> breath and go back down, just oblivious to you. And that, that was something I'll never forget. That's cool. That's great. So that's, that would be one of my uh, uh, favorite books. I, I, I wrote a, a children's book, I co-wrote a children's book. It's, it's an illustrated children's book for children and adults of all ages, but it's, it's written for young readers, eight to 10 year olds. And, uh, but it's, it's a book with a lot of meaning. In fact, I just heard today from, uh, or I heard today from someone, they, they turned it into a vacation Bible school curriculum. 
And then oh. I heard from someone else who used it for an adult retreat. So it's called Corey in the Seventh Story. Um, Corey so in the Seventh Story. Yeah. And then, you know. Does that, uh, does that have anything to do with um, what's his name, Seven Story Mountain? Uh, it doesn't. No. Uh, <laughs> Uh, although I'm sure there are some resonances, but the, the, uh, it's about a little raccoon who lives in a village where he sees everybody fighting all the time. And he, uh, he realizes that there are six stories that people are living by that are causing them conflict. And he goes looking for a seventh story. So that's the, uh, that's the, the framework for the book. And then probably of my other books, you know, I've, I've written, I think, I don't know, 18 or 19 books or something. But um, I wrote a book called A New Kind of Christianity that a lot of people have found helpful. Uh, yes. Probably my best known book is called The Generous Orthodoxy. And probably my first book that was well known uh, was called A New Kind of Christian. So. Yes. Uh, and I have read two of those and I am looking, but now you've got me interested in reading the children's book, especially now that I have a grandson, I've been looking at books I can read with him, but you're saying I, I need to wait a little while. How old him. is he? How old is he? He's six months. <laughs> yeah. I'd say uh, you could, it's always good to read to kids, whatever their age. <laughs> but, yes. uh, but when I wrote this, I got the field test that I have five grandkids and my grandkids at the time between five and eight years old, just ate it right up. So it, it but I'd say eight to 10 is perfect, but you know, uh, it's great to read to, it's great to read to kids when they're asleep, you know, <laughs> just, just the rhythm of hearing an adult voice, I think is good for a child. Well, anything that I've written is good to read to anybody to put them to sleep. So. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm sure I've done my share of that too. Well, what, what's, uh, what upcoming, what are you working on now that you're most excited about? Well, I'm deep into my next book, which I'm really excited about. It's called Faith After Doubt. And, um, you know, so many people are, uh, I think people have always had doubts, but I think more people are having doubts. And I think in the past, a lot of people kept their doubts secret, but now people yeah. are admitting it. And and a whole lot of people experience a lot of anxiety. They think, oh, because I'm doubting, I'm losing my faith. But my proposal in this book is that um, we go through various stages of faith and doubt is a portal from one stage of faith to the next. So that's, uh, I'm having so much uh, fun writing this book and uh, hoping it'll help people. And, and the title is what? Faith After Doubt. It will be out in early 2021. My dad wrote one years back that I used to give uh, when I was a college professor and counselor. I used to give some of my students called "If I Really Believe, Why Do I Have These Doubts?" So oh, that's excited. great. That's yes. great. I I think there there's so much. You were talking about this this anxiety. I think so many people tie faith to lack, uh, or, or excuse me, lack of faith to uncertainty. Yeah. And, and from what I've heard from you before, you, you, I think you do a good job of separating those two. Can you, can you say exactly. something about that? I would separate three things, actually. I would separate certainty from faith. If you have certainty, you have no faith. <laughs> um, Explain that one, yes. Well, certainty, uh, certainty is sight. And, and so, like in the Bible, we read, we walk by faith, not by sight. So faith only works in the realm where we're uncertain, right? Uh, if we see it, it's not faith. So I, I think, but I think unfortunately what happens is a lot of people feel they have to pretend they're certain. 
And then when they can no longer pretend they're certain, then they, then they feel, oh no, other people are going to punish me because I, I'm, I'm not doing a good job holding up the pretense. But I, I think a, an equally important distinction is between faith and beliefs. Um, because Abraham, for example, uh, he's held up all through the Bible, Old Testament and New, for his faith. In Romans 4, Paul holds him up as kind of the icon of faith. He says anyone who is a person of faith is a descendant, a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Yes. Um, Abraham had no, very little in the way of beliefs, right? No Bible, right. no doctrines, no religion to join. In fact, one of the ways his faith is described in, he, in Hebrews, it says that Abraham had faith because when uh, God called him, he went out not knowing where he was going. <laughs> so just the willingness to go on an adventure was an expression of his faith. And I think what happens for a lot of people is when they equate faith and beliefs, when they question their beliefs, they think they're questioning God. But that, uh, that would only make sense if your beliefs perfectly contain God. And if you think that you perfectly contain God, I, I think you have an idol, not God, right? Because God is always bigger than our understanding. Right. So, so I, I think we really have some work to do. And in fact, it's been fun for me just thinking a little more deeply about this, working on this book, Faith After Doubt, really trying to examine my own heart um, on this. Uh, yeah. Well, what have you discovered in examining your own heart? Well, I, I'll tell you a... Um, a verse that has been there all along, but ended up has become almost a theme verse for the book. It's in Galatians. And Paul says uh, a really remarkable thing. He says, um, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. Uh, is that Oh, it, oh, you said it, in Galatians. It, it's in Galatians 5. Okay. It, it's a theme that comes up in many places in Paul's writings. But there's right. a place where, you know, it's pretty remarkable to say circumcision or uncircumcision. They, it doesn't mean a thing. Uh, and you could find a whole lot of people holding up their Bible saying, well, according to this verse, it means something. But what Paul's saying is, no, listen, all of that was like a school teacher to bring us to the point where we don't need it anymore. We get to the point where we realize what really matters is faith that expresses itself in love. And, and, and one of our problems, I think, is that uh, both, uh, you know, Christians of all different denominations and non-denominations have, have in some ways acted as if the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in beliefs. <laughs> but it's faith expressing itself in love. And mm. my hunch is that a lot of people have doubts because their beliefs are not allowing them to expand their hearts in love. And so they, they, the belief holds them back from loving their neighbor as themselves. And so they think that belief is in the way. And so they start to question or challenge or, or doubt it. And they think they're doing something wrong. Imagine a young uh, you know, Jewish person in Paul's day who starts to think everybody's always told me that the most important thing is whether you're circumcised or not, whether you're marked as of an official Jew or not. Your identity as Jew or Gentile is the most fundamental thing about you. And Paul comes along and says, ah, it really doesn't mean anything. <laughs> it's, you know, it's remarkable. It's really remarkable. So that's one of the things that has really, you know, helped me realize that, you know, I, I was a fundamentalist in my early days. I grew up fundamentalist. And 
Um, and uh, and I, I'm not proud of this, but I was one of those people who was very quick to judge and I had every, everything figured out and I would argue you into, you know, agreeing with me and that kind of a thing. And, and I realized though that even though that was going on, underneath I was being drawn by love. I was being drawn by God's love. And, and uh, that has drawn me through many stages of faith and doubt. But the consistent thing, I think, is what Paul realized. I've been being drawn to faith expressing itself in love. Mm, yeah. I like that. My, my children, I've had some conversations with them. Uh, at least, you no, know, I think I've heard some version of this from each one of them lately. I've kind of always been, it's in my blood and in my upbringing to question, <laughs> to question what the church authorities are telling us is, and my, my dad was, has always been uh, kind of known for doing that and yeah. questioning the old ways and, and changing some hearts and minds, but also some people um, referring to him as a heretic and a yeah. apostate. And, but, um, so it's kind of always been there, but sometimes when I have conversations, especially with my children um, about theological matters and I'm, and I'm, and I'm starting to have a paradigm shift or just maybe a, maybe not a paradigm shift, but just a, a, a shift in, in how I see a certain aspect of theology or um, scripture. And, and it goes against what the, the party line is, the church yeah. line um, or what my children have been brought up to believe, they uh, I've heard this expressed by each one of them some ways that uh, this is scaring me. Yeah. So you you mentioned a, a little about some of it is that we're uh, afraid to have doubts, and and part of that is that to have doubts about what the rest of our fellow believers that we tend to worship with or hang out with some of that fear comes from being ostracized from the group. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like you're also saying some of, some of that fear is, is inside is, is maybe just the fear of uncertainty. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think there are probably many different layers of fear I mean, probably the most obvious layer is if I've been taught that God will reject me unless I have the correct beliefs. I don't know if you remember Dallas Willard. You probably read some of Dallas's books. Oh, yes. Dallas was a dear friend and kind of a mentor to me. And Dallas used to call this barcode religion, that when you die, God puts you over the barcode scanner to see if the right beliefs are in your brain. And if the right beliefs are there, heaven and if the wrong beliefs hell you know and he said look yeah, yes that, that's you can't justify that based on the bible um that's one of the ways that that mixing the idea or, or confusing the idea of faith and beliefs i think is a uh, you know creates creates some difficulty so sometimes people are afraid god will reject me god will send me to hell god will punish me god will be displeased with me sometimes that though the, the fear of God is sort of theoretical. It's, it's really the fear of being ostracized, rejected. Um, and, you know, people like me, and I think you're from a similar background, when you grew up in a, cons a background where conservative is good and liberal is bad, the biggest fear is somebody will call me liberal. 
liberal means heretical, liberal means compromising, liberal means the enemy. And our, our identity as Christians was fused with conservative and, and conservative meant theologically conservative, but it also meant politically conservative, socially conservative, fiscally, like the whole package got glommed together and the word liberal was a bad word. And, and, right. and, and people, you, you know, you, you realize, I've heard people say terrible things about liberals or whatever. Oh no, if I, they see me as liberal, they'll say terrible things about me. You, you probably heard, you know, there's a famous book in American religious history by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But I think Sinners in the Hands of, an, of Angry Christians is also pretty scary. And, <laughs> and I think a lot of us are worried about that. But then I think there's probably even just the psychological dimension that, you know, ideas that involve us having to change our mind about things, they raise alarms and they make us feel uncomfortable. So that's, that's understandable. Yes. The evidence is overwhelming. Reputable and proven marriage intensives have a far higher success rate than counseling or therapy for marriages that are struggling or even failing. I myself am a counselor. I earned my master's degree in marriage and family therapy and I see multiple couples in my office on a weekly basis. But unless it's premarital counseling, I don't work with a couple until after they have been through a proven intensive. I've now led more than 126 such intensives over the past 15 years. The University of Washington found that only 17% of couples in crisis who start with counseling will still be married just two years later. However, two separate studies have shown that at least 72% of the couples who have attended an intensive that I conducted are still married. You can't find a better choice for turning your marriage around than our intensive Love Reboot. Come join the thousands who have attended a love reboot and are now experiencing a thriving, vibrant marriage. You can find us on the web at growinglovenetwork.org. That's growinglovenetwork.org. Well, so you you mentioned this all being kind of globbed together that, you know, a lot of our our theology, our religion, our understanding of scripture is closely linked to our politics. And, and these days there's so much increasing polarization that some of those derogatory terms are even stronger and people are, the, the camps are more divided. Do you see any connection to that? Because this is really a marriage podcast. <laughs> yes. But do you see any connection to that and how we do relationships, especially our most important earthly relationship, which is, I, I, I would think you agree, our spouse? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, boy, what a great question. So I can see this being a, a, a marital issue from several several different angles you know you just mentioned going through kind of a paradigm shift i mean when when one party in a marriage goes through some rethinking and the other party isn't there that can either cause distrust and worry and fear or it can deepen the relationship but very often it will cause 
fear before it uh, deepens the relationship. I, I, my wife and I have been very fortunate in that we have gone through our, our own theological paradigm shifts and growth and changes in thinking really as a team. And, and, and we haven't been terribly out of sync, but I have good friends who've been really, really out of sync with their spouse. And it does cause some pain, um, especially, especially in the short run. But there's an, another dimension to it when you say politically. You know, I'm, I'm very interested in politics. I think, you know, the, the ba- the, there is a lot of bad faith in politics going on. In other words, faith and politics are working together in a way that makes politics worse and makes faith worse. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm super critical of that. And in fact, some things that I just heard on the news today just made my skin crawl. I heard, a, a, you know, today, I, people will be listening to this at all different times, I know, but um, the uh, Congressman Elijah Cummings died this morning. Yes. Um, and I knew Elijah Cummings back when I was a pastor in Maryland. You know, he, was, he worked out of Baltimore, and my church was just south of Baltimore. So, um, and I have great respect for him. I think he's a fine human being and a wonderful congressperson. And a Christian today said God killed him because he criticized President Trump. And wow. I just, what a vicious, mean-spirited thing to say, right? But religious people get involved in politics, and it goes both ways. And all kinds of ugly stuff happens. But right. one of the things that is being talked about in the political world right now is uh, especially Donald Trump. And, and we were polarized before Donald Trump, but Trump is a polarizing figure. I mean, he calls people names. He, you know, he does things that no president has ever really done in this way. Right. Um, but one of the things that's happening is, of course, white people, um, and especially white evangelical Christians, have really been Trump's base. Um, white evangelical men supported Trump more than white evangelical women. And what's happening now is white evangelical women are changing in their support for Trump faster than white evangelical men. And so I would expect that- You mean there, more women are jumping into that camp or no, out of jumping, it? No, jumping out of it. They're, okay. they're, they're, they've been bothered by, you know, they, they can, they're losing trust and support in Trump. And so I could imagine between now and 2020, you know, on the issue of politics, there's going to be tension in marriages. And, and uh, of course, back in the old days, I guess husbands told their wives, of course, wasn't that long ago, we have to remember that women couldn't vote. And right. then there was a period of time where some men thought they had the right to tell their wives how to vote. But something I'm sure grateful for, for my parents is I remember being a little boy on election day. And my dad was a registered Republican, and my mom was a registered Democrat. And they didn't even tell each other who they voted for. It was like, that's none of your business. <laughs> and, and I remember thinking, good for you. You know, you, this is, I, I learned something from that. <laughs> so that's how they negotiated that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, so you were saying that uh, you and your wife have kind of been in sync through your um, paradigm shifts. I, I want to say something about paradigm shifts. First of all, I, I almost think it takes and this is a weird thing to say, you might be able to put into words better than what I'm saying. I think it takes more faith um, to have shifts in your theology than it does to not. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, if, if I am just going and every time I pick up my Bible to read it, I'm looking 
for it to support what I already believe, yeah. then nothing's, then all I'm going to see is, is what, what I want to see. And I'm, and I'm going to ignore the rest. And, and, and the, the Bible then doesn't become a living, breathing thing in my life. You know, you're, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, you being a counselor, you, you know, this, um, there's a psychological term for this. It's called confirmation bias. And when you study confirmation bias, it is scary because it's true of all of us that we are, that our brain before we're even conscious of it, our subconscious brain, hears a message and, and evaluates whether it fits in with what we already think. And, and it wants to reject anything that doesn't fit in with what we already think just because it's more efficient. Right. 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 Um, and so this, this problem of confirmation bias exists in everybody. And I personally, in fact, if people are interested, I, I wrote a little ebook about this um, that you can get on my website. It's called, why don't they get it? And I, <laughs> it's a book about bias. And when I started studying different kinds of bias, it made me look at the gospels and see how Jesus had to challenge people to try to get them out of their biases, to look at things in a new way. And, and what, you know, another word for paradigm shift is repentance (laughs) because, (laughs) because we, we usually think of repentance me meaning to feel sorry for something you did wrong, but the word repent really means rethink. It really means have a paradigm shift. And, and, and the word repent means rethink everything rethink your paradigms be willing to look at life in a radically new way and so for that reason in the sermon on the mount jesus repeatedly says you have heard it said but i say to you and so he's saying look i'm i'm challenging you to rethink the things that you've heard since you were a child i'm i'm challenging you to think in new ways so yeah i think that's it's certainly true about faith and it's especially true about faith in jesus because jesus it's still way ahead of us. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yes. I, I, and, and I would say, I just got back from Brazil um, where I was with a team for a week. We were there to support and serve and revive um, missionaries there. Um, 59 missionaries came from all over South America. It was a great time. But And I was telling, we got assigned to groups. So you have your your group of missionaries that uh, you're kind of counseling and leading um, several times a day. And I was telling them, you know, in spite of these probably more rapid than my family's comfortable paradigm shifts I'm having, <laughs> that um, my faith is stronger than, than, yes. than I can ever remember. It's more vibrant, it's more exciting. And I think that's um, what a lot of people fear is when they see somebody kind of straying from the, the fold, they, they think that they're losing their faith. Yes. Yes. And, yes. and I guess that can be true in some circumstances, but I don't, I don't, I have the opposite feeling. I, I feel my, my faith is more vibrant and alive than it's ever been. Yeah, I and can I say I I've never met your father, but just based on the little bit you told me about him, it sounds like you were given a great example in your upbringing because your dad was somebody who wasn't afraid to be different and wasn't afraid to challenge the status quo. 
you know, the other word for that is leadership. <laughs> and, and I think it's, it, it's, it's, um, it, it's a wonderful gift to be given an understanding of faith that you don't figure out everything by the time you're 13 or 23 or 33. In other words, that to say, no, we're going to keep learning all through our lives. To be a disciple means to be a learner and you're never done learning. You know, I, I remember having a feeling growing up in a very conservative church. I was about 13. I was super avid student. Like I was an A straight A student in school and I was a straight A student in church in the sense that I listened to the Bible stories and I was, you know, memorized a lot of verses and all the rest. And I remember having this sad feeling at about 13 or 14, like I haven't heard anything new in a couple of years. It's like no. the same old thing week after week. They, they have a different Bible verse, but it's the same point. <laughs> and, and I remember thinking, oh, I guess that's how it is. Now I've, we've figured it all out. We just got to keep singing about it and telling the old, old story. What a difference when you feel like, you know, you're in your thirties or forties or fifties. I'm in my sixties now. Like, I'm still feel like a little child. There's, the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. The more I feel I come to know God, the bigger God seems and the more of a mystery it is, you know. Yes. I, I sure like this feeling better than that feeling I had in, back in middle school. Oh, yes, yes. I, I, I so, so that just res, resonates with me so well. Well, um, I, I, I'm interested then, so you said you and your wife seem to stay in sync. So help me out here, because I think I freak my wife out sometimes too. Although she's, uh, I think she's, we've been married 34 years, so she kind of, I think she knows that, um, you know, by now she doesn't have to worry too much, but yeah. Sometimes, well, yeah. sometimes she advises me to keep my thoughts to myself because they might freak other people out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Too yes. much. But yeah. So how did, how did you know, negotiate? I mean, how did you, how did you accomplish that? What, what, what what's your secret to staying in yeah. with your wife? You know what? I, I honestly, John, I don't think I've done anything right in this. I just think this is luck. It's we haven't done anything. I haven't, we, this is just luck. Look, my wife and I have plenty of things that we're, we're, we haven't been in sync on, right? We've had plenty <laughs> of issues that we've struggled with. Uh, it just happens in our marriage that, that that's not one of them. But I'll tell you, because of the books I write, um, I have many, many people through the years who come to see me. And I remember one fellow calling me. In fact, it was a pastor who I knew. And he called me late one night. Uh, and he said his wife was in the other room crying. And uh, he had told her that he was having some questions and thinking differently about some things. And she just had a, uh, he was worried she was going to have a nervous breakdown. She was so anxious about it. And what he had realized is that he was a preacher and his father-in-law was a preacher. And he realized that he put his wife in the position that if she agreed with him her father was the kind of person to call her a heretic and oh. to say that she was in danger of going to hell and blah 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 you know her father was a yeah. super strict you know guy and so she's torn between two relationships and you could sort of imagine a woman who grows up oldest child wants to please authority figures her father's a pastor she's a good girl she marries a pastor she's been the good girl her whole life 
And funny now, you know, I forget how old they were, but let's say it was 35 or 36. And at 36, for the first time, she's having to grow up in a certain sense and say, I'm not my daddy's little girl anymore. I'm a full grown woman and I'm allowed to think and I'm allowed to have a mind and I'm allowed to think for myself. And if my husband and I think differently than my father, that's his problem, you know? And, and I think that's a big deal in, in these things. You know, if there's, I'm not happy about what I'm going to tell you here, John, I'm really, I'm still mourning this, but I've become convinced that very few of us ever think, <laughs> mm. um, most of us only ask ourselves what the group that we're part of wants us to think, and we just parrot what the group we're a part of wants us to do. Mm. And and I think, uh, in fact, when I was working, I've been working on this book, Faith After Doubt. I noticed something. Can, can I read you a verse about this that I oh, never, yes, please. never noticed before? Um, but this is Matthew ten. Like a lot of people are really freaked out about this verse, but here's the verse, Matthew 10, 34. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, a lot of people think, oh, is he talking about violence? Well, it's clear he's not talking about violence. But what he means is we're gonna, there's gonna be division because of me. Here's what he says. Right. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Well, you know what's interesting? That I, I've always found that a super problematic verse. Yeah. But I, 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 I'm not sure, but I think I get it now. I think what he's saying, every example he gives is an example of generational conflict. Hmm. You know, Jesus was a young man. He finished his earthly leadership by the age of 33. He says, look, don't, come to think I'm making everybody happy. Um, there's going to be division. There's going to be division in families. The older generation, a father is going to be against his son and a mother is going to be against her daughter. And there's going to be generational conflict. And, and I, I just think that's like, th that's a reality. Jesus message is a message that calls us to change. And I know many of us think, that the that we were perfect in the 1950s or the 1980s or whenever it was uh, can i say that it, it's almost only white people who think we were ever perfect in the 1950s or whatever <laughs> um, because right. uh you know people of color were seeing the downside of white so-called perfection right but, um but you know when you're given this idea that our denomination our church our movement has it right and to change is to go downward to be wrong but say no it and and the people always use the it's the slippery slope if you change you'll fall all the way down the slope well what if that's not true what if we're climbing the mountain <laughs> and to stay where you are means staying at a low altitude and our job is to keep growing and keep moving up the mountain right in, in that case well in fact the one of the early church fathers gregory of nyssa said uh, he defined sin as a refusal to grow huh. uh, it's a pretty powerful definition i think Wow, I, I got to write that one down. Yeah, that was Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, and uh, in fact, Gregory of Nyssa, his, his fellow uh, theologians were a little nervous about him because he described heaven not as perfection, but as infinite progression. <laughs> he said, 
the essence of heaven isn't that you arrive and you stay static. The essence of heaven is that you keep learning and growing forever and ever and ever. <laughs> I love that. Huh. Yeah, it's got me thinking. If we, you know, if we were in heaven and, and we, we notice there's so much more than, than what we ever believed could be, but uh, we're, <laughs> we're still, there's still so, so much more to understand. It would be, yeah. it would be uh, kind of hell to go, <laughs> I can't, I'll never get to know any of this. <laughs> That's right. I think so. I think so. Yeah. But bringing it back to your question, um, I, I think, uh, I think we should expect that there will be tension when, when one party is growing in a way that another, that the other member of the couple isn't growing. And this challenges a lot of our traditional ideas of marriage because a lot of our traditional ideas of marriage basically gave the man the right to set the pace and the woman just had to go along, right? This is kind of classic patriarchy. Um, right. But I think what's happening now is more and more of us are realizing that one of the liberations of the gospel is, as Paul said, there's no male or female, uh, you know, slave or free, Jew or Greek, that um, we're all one in Christ. And so that in Christ, women and men, husbands and wives are, are equal. And so uh, God as a father, if we want to use this image, doesn't look at his sons with more status than his daughters, but rather God is the kind of father who looks at sons and daughters as 100% equal. And I think that's true. And what that means is that in our marriage, we have to have the same respect for each other that God does, which is the respect to say, you're allowed to grow and you don't have to grow in ways that always agree with me or make me comfortable. Um, and part of our, our love, part of the love of our, our relationship is allowing one another to grow, think, rethink, change. You vote for this candidate. I vote for this candidate. We'll listen to each other. We'll learn from each other. Yeah, that, I think yes. that's a healthy marriage. Well, yes, and I, I, I do think I've noticed that my wife, Joanna, she sets the spiritual pace in some ways that I don't. And, uh, and it's not because I've, you know, said, okay, you get to set the pace here. It's because yeah. she has strengths there that I don't, she's really good about first thing in the morning. She's got her Bible in her lap and her Jesus calling and her my utmost for his highest. And, and then a little devotional book that I, she even, I can't know, I don't know how she reads what I've written, but, uh, but she, that's, you know, she sets that, that tone and without her doing that, it would probably be maybe once a week I'd start the day off with my Bible reading because, yes, but yes. because it's what she does every morning. Then it's, you know, then I follow her lead on that one. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny you say that Joanne and I have been married now through, I, I believe nine presidential elections and, and we've only voted for the same person for president twice. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I, and then people always want to know, okay, which one, which ones were those? And I'm like, I'm not going to tell you because you're going to like one of us and think the other one of us is an idiot. Good for you. Good for you. I, I think that's great. You know, um, years ago, uh, you've probably seen and maybe even used this illustration. I just looked for something on my desk to get to use it. But, um, uh, you know, for a lot of people, they think to be married means that they're yoked to each other, which means where one goes, you know, the other has to go at the same time and so on. And right. I, I, somebody just uh, 
uh, I just picked up this little necklace that was on my desk. And, and someone said, well, no, what if the, the marriage is like this necklace and I'm bound to the marriage and my wife is bound to the marriage? Well, now as the, the, the size of the necklace gives us space, to, which is freedom. And, 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 we, and in a sense, as we give each other more freedom, we, in a sense, we bring fresh things back, you know, to each other. Because yeah. if we're always together, there's nothing one of us can bring to the other. But we have some freedom to explore. I think that's, I think that's a good thing. If if you want it, I mean, some people that's not what they want. No, I, I'm and I'm trying to I'm I'm working that in my head here as you're saying it. it there really is true. The more like if we if you think of, attached to this thing that's flexible and and it's not like we're we're tied neck to neck and and um, every little move we make affects the other. The the more freedom we give to each other uh, as spouses to think, be whatever we tend to actually work more in unison. I, I think there's some truth to that, you know, because it's not a matter of domination and resentment for domination and so on. Right. Um, you know, I, I, and I, I wouldn't judge people who don't like that. Like, for example, my parents had a very different kind of marriage. My, my mom just died a couple of months ago and, and I've been thinking a lot about her life and my parents' lives and, and their marriage. And, and my parents had a very, very traditional marriage. They, Everywhere they went, they went together. My dad hated to go anywhere without my mother. My mother hated to go anywhere without my dad. And, you know, that worked for them. That's what they wanted. They didn't seem to resent it. Mm. Um, my wife and I have had a very different kind of marriage. And, and, I, and my parents didn't look down at us. I think they got a kick out of us being different from them. Uh, and so I think we have to also make room. For there, there's different ways to do this. You know? There's a lot more freedom in Christ than there is in other people will give us a lot less freedom than Christ will give us very often. <laughs> okay, I'm going to make this short and to the point. The podcast you're listening to, Relationship Rewire, is a free service to the public provided by Growing Love Network, a nonprofit organization. That means we don't make a profit. In fact, to be able to do what we do, which is to provide top notch innovative help for marriages, we rely on donors so that everyone can have access to the help they need, regardless of the ability to pay. Won't you take a moment, hit the pause button, and go to growinglovenetwork.org. Click on the donate button and give what you can. If you're not sure about it at this moment, hit pause anyway, just for 15 seconds, and ask yourself if this is what you should do. Go ahead. I'll wait. This is Max Lucado. You're listening to Relationship Rewire. I, I think, you know, now bringing this zooming back out, we're kind of looking at the at, at marriages, but zooming back out to the church, you know, what, whatever your, your local congregation that you might be a part of or were a part of, I, I've noticed that um, I've been part of a few different churches for three segments of my life that I served in and and you know got to know but i noticed that there one of those started when well i don't know if it started out but when we started at it 
it was more, there was more freedom to have a different opinions and different, you know, theological ideas. But then it seemed that over time, and especially I think this was impacted by economics as well, but uh, there was a time when attendance started going down. And with that came um, more rigidity and a, and a more uniformed, um, this is what we've got to stand on. You know, I, I've always thought about churches usually have their little creed that they print in their bulletin. This, this is what we believe and things like yeah. that. I've always thought uh, that church, that, 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 that if, if you have 15 statements of faith on your bulletin, that a goal of that church would be to, to knock one of those off of the list every year, <laughs> you know, but, but it seems like um, sometimes they tend to start adding. Yes. And uh, so do you, do you see where I'm going with this? Oh, I do. I do. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you, what do you think? What do you think is going on there? Okay. I'm going to tell you the truth. Um, what I think is going on. Uh, okay. I, I just was, I just preached at a church, uh, uh, over the weekend in California, and the pastor uh, gave a benediction that there were two lines in the benediction that just went right to my heart. She said, the world is too dangerous for anything but the truth and too small for anything but love. I love that. So <laughs> truth and love is what we need. But look, I, uh, part of what is happening is a phenomenon of American history. and. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but I'm going to tell you, I'm telling you the truth. If people want to do some research on this, they could um, look up an article by a historian named Randall Balmer, B-A-L-M-E-R. And uh, he wrote this in a book, but it was also in an article on the uh, Politico website. But um, basically, a lot of people don't know this, but in the 1960s, uh, most evangelicals were pro-choice. Most people don't know this, but most were pro-choice. Wow. Southern Baptists were pro-choice. In fact, in the early 1970s, the Southern Baptists passed some resolutions defending uh, uh, a pro-choice position. And, and when you tell people that today, they won't believe, they, they found it hard to believe. But that it, is, yeah. Um, and many, uh, you know, uh, Protestant le leaders today uh, make it sound like this has been the unified position of Christians through history. And it just hasn't. But what happened was in the 1960s, when the Civil Rights Act was passed, uh, I'm, I, what I'm about to tell you is disturbing, but it, uh, I think people need to know this. Um, when the Civil Rights Act was passed, thousands and thousands of churches around the country, predominantly white churches, started Christian schools because they didn't want their children going to school with black children you know, predominantly white churches started Christian schools and they were segregated. And, and then in the mid 1970s, a, a rumor started going around that Jimmy Carter, you know, when he became president in 76, that he wanted to take away tax exempt status from schools that practice segregation. So a group of, and, and these white Christian schools segregated Christian schools were Catholic and Protestant. 
So okay. a group of Catholic and Protestant leaders got together and they said, well, we might have to fight this all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, Bob Jones University was one of the key players in this, if you've ever heard of them. Yes. You might have to fight this all the way up to the Supreme Court. And people said, well, we don't want to be seen as the pro-segregation people. And a Catholic leader said, well, why don't you make abortion your issue? We can make that our rallying issue, um, but that, and we'll build an alliance and we'll be able to protect our tax exempt status. That's a part of this history that a lot of people don't know. And so what, what happened between 1960 and 1976 and 1980 is that the Republican Party and, the and certain evangelical leaders made a series of agreements and so part of the reason why things have been getting tenser and tenser in recent years is because more and more of the Protestant and Catholic establishment has been sort of as united by Fox News and Rush Limbaugh as they are by Jesus Christ in the Bible. And, you know, when you think about the influence that Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson or Rush Limbaugh have on thousands and thousands of Christians. They spend more time listening to Rush Limbaugh in an average week than they spend listening to their pastor, that's for sure. Mm. And so uh, I know this might be more than you asked for, but I just think we have to realize that that has happened. And that's part of what's going on. And some people are happy about it and they think it's great. Um, mm. and, and some people aren't, but it's, it's out there. Well, you've got, you've got my curiosity up now. So the why, what would be the explanation for the, the Baptist? Uh, I think you were saying mostly Baptist, or that was the Baptist stance in the '60s was uh, pro-choice. What what would have been the reasoning for their? <laughs> well, one of the most famous. Uh, are you in Texas? Yeah, you're in Texas. Yes, right? yes. So one of the most famous Baptists in all of Texas history was uh, Chriswell. Uh, is it W. A. Chriswell? I forgot his initials, but uh, he was the pastor, I think of the church where Robert Jeffress is pastor now, but Chriswell was the pastor. And Chriswell was unapologetically pro-choice because of the Bible. He said, look, Genesis 1 makes it clear. Uh, it says in Genesis 1, God breathed uh, his breath of life into Adam, and Adam became a living being or a living soul. So he says, when does life begin? It begins at the first breath. Um, and so that, was his, that was his reason. Wow. And in fact, I, when I was in high school, I wrote an article, I, I, I had a class where I had to write a term paper and the topic I was assigned was abortion. I'd never heard of abortion. I was, what was I, 17 years old. I never heard of abortion. I didn't even know what it was. Hmm. Um, so it certainly wasn't a big deal in my uh, evangelical fundamentalist church growing up, we never talked about it. And when I asked uh, my parents about it, they said, oh, that's something Catholics care about. <laughs> so that's even <laughs> in my lifetime, you know. Huh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember it being a big thing either um, as, as a youngster. Yeah, I, I don't. Anyway, all that's to say yes. that what we're dealing with now is not just a matter of theological disagreement. We, you know, the, the fusion of, of theology and politics in many different ways is it's, other things are going on. And it's not as simple as, I mean, I think I have a more complex understanding of it than I did five years ago, but I'm sure it's way more complex than I know even right now, but a yes. lot is going on. And, and what that means, I think we all ought to wake up. I mean, look, we know that in Germany, Lutherans and Catholics and others supported Hitler. 
how did they do this? How did they go along with this? Well, it, that ought to be a lesson. We're no better than that. Right. We, ought to, we ought to be aware of this. In America, you know, most white Christians supported slavery for most of, you know, our history of slavery. It yes. was a, a minority that people thought were liberal. And in fact, a, another famous Baptist preacher, Robert Dabney, once said, we have to present slavery as biblical so that if you're against slavery, you're against the Bible, right? That's, that was the, the strategy. Uh, right. And, and you might say, well, these people were so evil. They loved slavery they, and they hated black people. Well, there, probably, there was a lot of that. But can I tell you, I really think they loved money. And they were making a lot of money and they couldn't imagine the economy being different. And right. that's, I think, I, I really think at the heart of this that Paul was absolutely right. The love of money is at the root of all kinds of evil. And something Jesus said that is absolutely stunning to me. He, I mean, he would get thrown out. He would get fired from any church if he said this. He said, you either love God and hate money or you love money and you hate God. Whew. Yeah. I've never heard a sermon preached on that. Is it, is it okay to like money? Well, I think... I, think, <laughs> I, I meant that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but... Yeah, no, but I mean, look, we all have to deal with money. Right, um, right. But I think if we take Jesus seriously, then we'd have to say, if, there, if, if, if I have nothing but good feelings about money, I've got, probably got some rethinking to do. And, yeah. and I'll just give you an example. When I think about what the love of money does to children so that parents love money so much that they don't spend time with their children. Ah, the love of money is a horrible thing. Yes, and when I yeah. think what the love of money does to the environment, people love money so much they don't care what, how much poison they pump into the earth and how many mountains they destroy because they just want to make another buck. There are other ways to make money than destroying things, but they love money so much that they'll destroy things. Then I start to get a feeling, oh, yeah. There's a downside to this, you know, and, and our dealing with money, uh, Jesus called it unrighteous mammon. So we have to become, in fact, in one of his parables, he says, we have to become clever in our use of unrighteous mammon. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. And, and I know I've, I've gone, used up more of your time than I promised. So I, I, I was kind of, I, I wanted to just mention something quickly because you said something there about waking up. And, um, and I thought where you were going to go is, you know, we look over in Europe and, and how the church has all but disappeared. And so many fear the same thing is happening here. I, I think that, and I, th I think you'd agree and probably can expound on this better, but uh, I read the, a book by Phyllis Tickle uh, years back about, she talked about this, I don't know, four or 500 year kind of cycle that we have. Yeah. I think we are actually in an exciting time right now, personally, for the church in, in, in the U.S., that the church in America, that we're on the cusp of something that uh, I think at least has the potential, but I think it is going to be a revival. Are you seeing that yourself? Um. Well, of course, I, I just wrote a book on that called The Great Spiritual Migration. So that's my book that came out in 2016. So I'm thinking about this a lot. Do, do we have three minutes to talk a little more about this? I, you, got, you got an hour with me. I just don't want to spend, take up your time. Well, uh, I do need to go in a minute, but let me just say, uh, 
I, I got asked to speak a couple of years ago to the World Future Society, and I thought I better do my homework before I speak to them. And one of the things I learned is that futurists, you know, people who study uh, the field of future studies, they don't make predictions. They said, look, we, don't, we aren't prognosticators, but what they do is they create scenarios. They, they learn how to look at the way systems work and change over time. And they, and they, yeah. and, and they usually take one set of, they, one of their scenarios is if future trends continue, what will that mean? And then they very often will say, but if best case scenario, right, what could happen? And then worst case scenario, what could happen? And when I think about the futures for the church in America, I think we will have a best, uh, a trends, you know, sort of middle and a worst case. I think we'll have them simultaneously. I think we'll have all three. Um, I think the worst case scenario is not religion declining. I think the worst case scenario is that we have a, what I would call white Christian nationalism, or some people call it Christo-fascism. Uh, it's, it's happening in different parts of the country. I'm especially sensitive to this, um, John, because I was in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, and I was part of the clergy response to the Unite the Right rally. So I got mm. to see Christo-fascists up close. Yes. These are hateful people. Uh, they hate Jews, they hate Muslims, they hate Blacks. Uh, they hate uh, any kind of immigrants and they talk about Jesus and they got crosses and, 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 uh, you know, they, they put white and Christian together in, in a hateful cocktail. I think that's, that could be on the rise. And, and that's to me the worst thing that, that uh, could happen in terms of the church. I yes. think many of our churches will continue on their shrinking and wrinkling trend, uh, getting smaller and getting older. But I do think that, Creative people um, who are willing to think in fresh ways and, are, and go back to Jesus and focus on Jesus and the good news of Jesus. My friend Tony, Tony Campolo calls these red letter Christians who get refocused on Jesus. Um, I think uh, amazing and beautiful, wonderful things are happening and can happen. Yes. Well, I would say you're one of those things. Well, that's nice I, I know there's some people, a lot of people that will agree, but then there's a, some people who will no longer listen to my podcast because you were on it. <laughs> well, you know, it, I, I hope that's not true, and I hope nobody will blame you just for uh, for having. No, I'm I'm going to blame you. I, I'm going to say no. He, I didn't want to do a podcast. He called me up and said. <laughs> <laughs> but can I just say what if that better case scenario happens? Yes. One of the reasons it's I think podcasts are one of the places where people get a chance to think fresh thoughts right right sitting in their car driving down the road without on running on the treadmill taking a walk around the block with those little earbuds in they're given a chance to think fresh thoughts and and that's what martin luther did you know with the printing press he gave people a chance to think fresh thoughts and yes we you're, you're doing that too so keep up the good work well thank you very much Yes, I hope that's, that's uh, what, what we strive for, what I strive for this to be about, is present some fresh, thoughts, some, some fresh thoughts in a way that are not too scary. So I just hope I hadn't scared too many people today. And I really appreciate you being on here, Brian. Thanks for having me. And uh, so uh, I, you, you have one other newer book, too, that's that your trilogy um, yes, um, my books, A New Kind of Christian, The Story We Find Ourselves In, 
and uh, the last word in the word after that just got re-released by Fortress Press. So oh, okay. they were coming up on their 20th anniversary and they got a new introduction. And yeah, I hope people enjoy those too. But the, the kid's book is called what again? Corey and the Seventh Story. Corey and the Seventh Story. And then the Galapagos one is? It's called The Galapagos Islands, A Spiritual Journey. All right. I'll have to check that one out. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Brian. Okay, we'll do it again sometime. Keep up the good work. I hope so. Thank you very much. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Relationship Rewire is produced by Growing Love Network. Growing Love Network exists to revolutionize relationships for lifelong love. You can find us on the web at growinglovenetwork.org. We welcome your feedback on this or any of our episodes. Send us an email to relationshiprewire at gmail.com.